This is episode 13 with food, diversity, and travel journalist Samantha Bacall. This is Magical Humans, and I am Vanya Vananina. I am an artist and creativity expert, and I am on a mission to talk to extraordinary people about their creativity, failures, wins, and everything in between. My wish is that these magical humans inspire you to take the leap and lead a creative life. Hi, Sam. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I have so many questions and I am really excited about the fact that we both love food. Yes. And diversity is a big topic for us too. So first I want, so I read that you were born and raised in Chicago. Yes. And tell me more about it. Like how was little Sam? Um, geez, little Sam. Um, I, yeah, I was born and raised in Chicago. My, um, Chinese grandparents actually raised me. My mom went back to work full time. And so I mostly grew up with my grandparents. So growing up, you know, I like understood Chinese. It was kind of my first language in a way. I never, ultimately when I was four years old and my mom asked me if I wanted to speak Chinese, I said, of course, no. Mm. And so probably my life's greatest regret is never learning it. But, you know, I still, I can understand it. But Mm -hmm. so it was a lot of, you know, we spent time in Chinatown with my grandparents. They would go down when my grandparents emigrated to um, the United States. They lived in Chinatown for a long time in Chicago. So they had all these friends and all these people that they'd go have coffee with in the morning. And, you know, we would go down a couple times a week and I would just sit with them in the bakery and, you know, listen to my grandfather talk with his old friends and like about fishing trips and stuff like that. And then when I got older, I spent a lot of time, um, I sang semi-professionally in a choir in Chicago and kind of the whole choir's mission was, um, you know, bringing people together from different backgrounds through Mm -hmm. music. And I think that's probably where a lot of my sort of diversity focused things come from, or that sort of was born there. Mm. And, um, it was never, you know, it was kind of strange for me. Like when I went to college, I went to U of I in Champaign-Urbana, which is kind of middle of nowhere, Wait, Illinois, U of I. University of Illinois. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, sort of the first place that I'd gone to growing up in Chicago, I was always surrounded by people that didn't look like me and it was just a very comfortable space. And then going to U of I, I, my freshman year, this like elective course was someone asked like, you know, is this more or less diverse than where you grew up? And most of the people in the room said more. And for me, I was like, wow, there's nobody here. And then moving to Portland, I was like, wow, Wow. there's nobody here. So, you know, I think I just spent a lot of time, like I grew up off of the Indian Pakistani street in Chicago. I was like always eating Indian Pakistani food. And I was always like in Chinatown. I kind of was always growing up with these different cultural experiences that sort of, I think, really shaped how I look at food and how I love food and Mm. kind of how I look at the world and, you know, how we treat others. And yes, it's, it's definitely, uh, food is definitely a system. How, how to say this? It's definitely something that forms our identities and informs our personalities, our lives, our values, even because in you must know this better than anyone, but different cultures, when they, when it comes to the way they prepare or consume food, it's there are a lot of traditions embedded mm-hmm. in those activities. Yeah, so it's very that ritual. Is, exactly. Food is like this. It's such a big subject that permeates all of our lives. Yeah. And, and no matter where you are. Totally. And it's something I think that connects. I mean, it connects everybody. Everyone eats. So then what happened in college? I actually was pre-med 
when, well, in my mind, I was pre-med when I went to college. And, you know, it took like a semester for me to realize that it was not the right fit uh, for me at all. And I, uh, all through high school, oh, not all through high school, but for my later years of high school, I had spent a lot of time, you know, when I'd go out to eat with my parents or whomever, I would take pictures of my food and I would blog about my food experience. And I was kind of doing this like kind of like small, like tiny scale, like criticism or just writing about my experiences being out in the world in the dining sphere. And Chicago is a fantastic dining city. It's a great service city, which I think Portland (laughs) could learn from. (laughs) Um, You know, and that kind of really steeped a lot of my perceptions of the food world and like how people should be treated and how ingredients should be treated and things like that. And, you know, once I decided to not be pre-med anymore, it was sort of this like, oh, what am I going to do now? And my mom was actually the one who you know, it was like, what if you go into journalism? And it was something that I had never considered. It's funny that I am a writer because writing was the hardest. I was a terrible writer in grade school. Like I followed the first sentence introduction, three supporting sentences. (laughs) You know, it was like every paragraph had five sentences and it was just like this very strict kind of regiment for me in writing. And then I think it was finally until high school when I realized that I didn't need to follow the rules when it came to writing. But, you know, I was like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll try journalism. And I sort of just started this like long line of serendipitous events in college. I was in my first journalism class and I happened to sit next to this girl that I didn't know. And of course, on the first day in any journalism thing, they're like, you have to interview your neighbor. And it sort of puts you this like immediately in this uncomfortable space of talking to someone you don't know, which is what I do almost every day. And are you now comfortable with it? No. Okay. (laughs) No, I don't think I mean, some people maybe, but I think a lot of people never get comfortable with it. Um, you know, and it was like, ask five questions and whatever, and write up a little thing and turn it in. And we, you know, did our exercise and then I never saw her again until like months later, I got an email from this girl and she's like, Hey, I don't know if you remember me or not. Um, but I was the person you, you interviewed and I remember you saying that you loved food and you wanted to be a food writer. The magazine at school at the, you know, the paper had a newspaper and a magazine and a radio station and things like that. And she said, the magazine is looking for food writers. And I instantly thought of you. Here's the email address for like the editor of the section. And I just thought I'd send it along. I love when those things happen. You did not, I bet you didn't think of that, that opportunity could arise. You you were just like, oh yeah, I would like to write about food. And then, you know, in the consciousness of the universe or her consciousness it was like okay i'm gonna connect with sam and then what happened yeah like it manifested on its own exactly so i was you know i ended up i emailed her and i started writing for the food section of the magazine and then the following year i ended up um, taking over the food section as the food editor and then my last year i was the editor-in-chief of the magazine and so at that point i had you know kind of fully decided that i was going to be a food writer and every journalism class i took i decided that you know, I was like, my food's my beat, which is funny because when you're in J school, a lot of people don't actually know what they want to write about. Wait, J school. Journalism, journalism school. school. Wow. I just learned something new today. Yeah. J school. J school. So fly. But a lot of people, you know, you'll sit and you go around the room and you can't pick the beat of somebody else. So I'm sitting here like, oh my God, please nobody pick food. <laughs> but there's people who are like, I don't know what I want to write about. I don't know. Like, I don't know what my passion is. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that was always crazy because I was like, there's only ever been one thing. It's, For you. it's only ever been food. 
And I knew that in college and it was nice because it actually freed up a lot of mental space for me to figure out how best to complement my experience. So I worked at the slaughterhouse on campus for six months for a class and, you know, I took food law and I worked at a restaurant and after I graduated, I worked at a distillery and I kind of wanted to cultivate all these different experiences within the food sphere because, Yes, food writing is writing about food or food issues, but there's also a lot of processes and kind of worlds that exist to sustain those processes of creating food. Like a plate of, you know, my dinner doesn't just arrive out of nowhere. There's a lot of things that take into account. For it goes it. through a lot of hands. Yeah. And so, you know, that's like basically what I spent. I went to University of Illinois as an ag school. So we had a lot of options for, you know, kind of supplementary courses, but you know, I was just looking for the most experiences that I could that would sort of shape my the best kind of put me in the position where I could be the best food writer that I could be and then when I graduated I was like oh shit did I screw myself over like I only have food clips I was like what if I don't get a job as a food writer because now I've kind of gotten to the point you know it's like when you're when you're always at the top of your game you don't really realize what else is out there and Mm. that's like me being kind of a cocky asshole but I had never run, I had never come across anybody else at school who was like, I want to be a food writer. Every, you know, like, no, I was like the only one running my game. And then I graduated and I was like, oh, everybody wants to be a food writer. (laughs) And, you know, so I actually, you know, it's like, it's still amazing to me that I got a job like at a newspaper as a food writer. And, you know, I, I actually, I made a point to write one story that was not food related. Food related. Woo, good thing. I'm not sure if it helped me or not, but I like felt, I was like, okay, in my back pocket, if they're like, is this it? I'm like, no, I got something else. No, no, no. <laughs> I, got, I got other work. But yeah, that, you know, that job at the food, the newspaper was here in Portland. And at I, the Oregonian. Yeah, at the Oregonian. And then, so that was fresh out of college? I spent six months working at a distillery after I graduated because mm. I was like, I don't want to work right away. In Illinois? In Illinois, yeah. Okay. It's called Few Spirits. Actually, it was in Evanston, mm. um, which is actually, F- Evanston is the home of Prohibition. And Few uh, is the initials for Frances E. Willard, who was the woman who allegedly kind of was the one who got the ball rolling on Prohibition. So it was kind of a, a little bit of a fuck you to Prohibition. But it was great. You know, I was like, I was the only woman there working on the floor you know people are always like oh do you work in the tasting room? i'm like no i work in the back making alcohol and i think that was you know it's always sort of a weird space for people to be in being like oh oh right like a one woman can do this like yes i can carry 50 pound bags of grain and i can lift barrels filled with things but so yeah the oregonian started six about i moved here in november of 2013 and you were there for four years right mm-hmm I wanted to ask about your Chinese heritage. Mm-hmm. How would you describe yourself as a Chinese American when it comes to talk about culture and tradition and heritage? What do you what do you say? I pretty much I'm half I'm Hapa. I'm half Chinese, half white. And but I primarily identify as Chinese American. I because I, I was I spent so much time with my Chinese grandparents and like they only speak Chinese at home and my my parents divorced when I was really young. My mom remarried. So I don't really know the other half of my family at all. And I think my grandparents and kind of their morals and their ideology and kind of that sort of mindset was instilled on me very young. And so it kind of, it, there was a kind of no other choice for me to be anything else. Anything I, don't, else. I don't think I wanted, you know, I didn't want to be anything else because like, I just wanted to make my grandparents proud. Oh, do they, are they still alive? My grandmother still is. What is her name? 
Uh, her American name is Jean. I actually don't really know. I mean, like, she goes has, you know, I only know her as Pua, which is grandmother in Chinese, but my, the white side of my family calls her Jean. Jean. And what about your granddad? What was his name? Steve. And how, what's grandpa in Chinese? Gong. So, Pua and Gong. What has a, a sweet sound? Yeah. Like, uh, Comforting and warm. Yeah, it's, you know, very, not cutesy in a way, but it is very, like, familial. Mm -hmm. How did growing up with your grandparents, how did that inform the way that you relate to food? In both Chinese dishes and products to traditions and practices? I think Chinese people, and I mean, not, not only Chinese people, but I think Chinese people in particular are very ritualistic with food. I think food is sort of the the thing that, you know, it's like when there's a wedding, there's a huge banquet. When there's a funeral, there's a big banquet. Sort of a lot of emotions are shared through food and kind of feeding other people is sort of, and I think a lot of cultures share that, but, you know, the act of feeding someone or the act of bringing food to someone is very kind of deeply instilled in Chinese culture. And so, you know, as I've always had happy associations with food, you know, it's like, My grandfather was the banquet captain at the John Hancock on the 20 or on the 95th floor um, and the city retired from when um, when he retired to raise me. And so, you know, he was a cook. And so, you know, I remember going into the kitchen and my grandfather was making dinner on this very illegal like walk setup. <laughs> you know, it was like a, it was like this huge tank of propane. <laughs> this like giant burner but you know like walks are such a big yeah, do part you, of do you need a specific setting to yeah make it, it was work. just like the stove wouldn't get hot enough for my grand you know so it's like he had this just ridiculous thing but you know i like i remember growing up my grandfather always cooked for me and so food was sort of always this thing that i had with my grandparents and my grandfather was cooking or my grandmother would there's these like sticky rice kind of they're not dumplings but it's like steamed sticky rice called like dongs And like we would make them together. We'd like go to Chinatown and buy them together. So I've always had these very positive associations with food. And my family is, um, my family speaks, we're Cantonese. My family speaks Toisan, which is sort of the like sub dialect of Cantonese. But sort of the, what I've read now that I'm older is like Guangzhou, which is kind of a more Cantonese region is sort of the culinary capital of China. And so most of the Chinese food that you eat as Americans is actually like Cantonese adjacent. Mm -hmm. It's, You know, Mandarin, I think like Sichuan foods really made a big impact in the past few years, like Shanghainese food, like soup dumplings are from Shanghai. So you're sort of now starting to see other parts of China kind of coming into the culinary canon and Americanized Chinese food are kind of things that we generally associate with. But for the most part, a lot of the majority of the Chinese food that we eat is kind of Cantonese. Mm. So your question was, <laughs> was yeah, how, how does that inform your the way you relate to food i mean you said like food is comfort food is bonds yeah social bonds but how yeah like if you think today the person that you are and the way you consume food and you savor it or dissect it or analyze it how is that where's that relationship with your grandparents i think you know growing up in chinatown You know, I think food, how we kind of associate ourselves with food is a little bit different now. I think, you know, like grocery chains have sort of changed how we associate, you know, how we buy food and how we approach food. And I think of, I don't know, you know, like my grandparents would always, there was like, 
in Chinatown, I don't know if it's still this way, but there's lots of people who would like sell vegetables on the street. And it was always like kind of my grandparents had their person that they would go mm -hmm. you know, talk to, you know, and so it's just sort of this like more of a community associated with food. And that's not to say that there's not a community now, but you sort of have this very curated food experience. I think particularly here in Portland than you do in other places, but like markets are still a really big thing in Asia and sort of that relationship. I sort of gleaned that relationship that my grandparents had with other people that I think a lot of people don't necessarily have with food because you have such a sterile association with it when you go to the grocery store and there's just vegetables on display. You don't really have that interaction with other people. So I think part of that kind of, you know, social, the social ties that you have with it are a lot of what I gleaned from them. And also just that, like, I don't know, you don't need to, for Chinese people love to like, <laughs> you know, like, oh, you need to eat more. Yeah. But then on like in the same breath will also be like you're getting fat. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's also very I'm, Mexican. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of people have that, you know, but it's. Well, let me just say something. I loved that you said that your grandparents had their person because that is also something that I relate to. Um, my family still in Me my family lives in Mexico. I was born and raised there in my mom still. So. In Mexico still, there's people that sell fruit and vegetables on the street and there are still markets as their supermarkets. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's highly urban and all. But still, there are some things that that still happen. Like my mom has her vegetable person and is this lady and her family and they work in the fields in the south of the city. So then my mom and they know that my mom likes uh, cucumbers that are in the shape of candy canes and like odd shapes. And it's so detail oriented. And they know like my grandmother used to, she had her butcher, which we still go to. And it's like in her neighborhood. And he knew how she liked food, like the meat cuts and things. So when you said like, oh, they had their person, it just brought out so many things. And and I agree he, nowadays, especially in the U.S., a lot of those interactions, and I'm not saying everywhere because I bet in small towns it's it's still like that. But um, in big cities, it's very sterile. Like you go to a supermarket and the food is there, but there's no conversation. I mean, not that the food is going to speak to you, but you know what I mean? Yeah, and there's also sort of a... There's no need anymore to kind of go to, I find, and I don't know if this is just me as like a weird person who shops, but I shop at a lot of different stores. Like Me too. I, For specific ingredients. Yeah. And, yeah. And I don't know, maybe that's just me or like, I think when I was growing up, my mom always, we went to like different places just because like this place has this and this yes. place has that. And, you know, like I still find myself shopping around, not for like, I'm like, oh, I just know that this is cheaper here or this is cheaper there. Or, or I it's know, better, like right, better produce. I know they're going to have what I'm looking for, but I spend, I feel like I spend so much time shopping. Me too. I mean, I love it now as a freelancer because I'm like, wow, there's passively people around me, which is really nice. <laughs> but you know, it's like, you don't, a lot of places, especially if you're not cooking those things, you don't ever need to, you know, you just can go to new seasons. You can just go to Fred Meyer. You can just go to Safeway. And there's sort of, you lose a lot of, I think, interactions with people, especially people that don't look like you. And that's that's not the fault of you, the cook, because you're going to cook what you're going to do. But 
kind of big box grocery stores have sort of eliminated a lot of those smaller relationships that you would form with people who, you know, like your milkman or Mm -hmm. right with a baker who makes your bread and and things like that. When you have everything in one place, you know, why would I need to go to four other spots to get these four other things when I can just get it all? And convenience has sort of eliminated a lot of a lot of those relationships. I also got that I inherited that practice from my mom. She still to this day goes to, it's like a, a chain of supermarkets that and they're all over town, but she goes to a specific one because the bakery there is better. Mm. And she goes to another one because the apples are always outstanding there. And, you know, she has like the meat person and the chicken person and the veggie person. And she goes to another place to buy grains, like all these things. And I feel like I brought that with me here. Mm -hmm. It's the same. I go to Waimaja for things. I go to uh, Fred Meyer or Walmart because there are Mexican products that they don't carry there. If my Mexican store is closed Mm -hmm. or Zupans for a specific ingredient, like it's, I feel very fortunate to be able to do that because even though they are big boxes, I still get that feel that, oh, I'm getting things from from different places, like back home. Yeah. Even though I'm not going to a corner to buy vegetables. Yeah. But and it is, yeah. And it is a very privileged, super privileged, ab- you know, ability to be able to have choice to do that and the yes. ability to do that. Growing up, what was your favorite? I'm curious to see if, what was your favorite dish growing up? And if it is the same mm. right now? I think it's the same. It's called juk and it's like, rice boiled to hell with water and now you know i'm like i chef it up a little bit i'll like add garlic and chicken stock and things like that but it's kind of it's basically just rice and water mm. and it sort of turns into this like gruelly kind of like thicker rice soup and it's just super comforting and it was always what i ate when i was sick and it's you know very plain it can be literally just rice just water and nothing else but i you know no seasoning right no seasoning and then you can add seasoning to it and a lot of people will make it fancy sometimes i'll do a soft egg or things like that but it's you know it's just like that comfort food that i couldn't like nothing would ever top this comfort food mm. and so i still make it all the time like it's also i think a great way to stretch resources when you don't have a lot like my parents used to watch survivor when i was growing up and it, it always, I was, it was so infuriating to watch them, like, they'd have rice, and that was, like, the only thing that they could eat. And they'd be like, oh, we don't have enough rice. I'm like, you know what you could do is you could just take that rice, and then you add a bunch of water to it, and as the rice breaks down, it expands and makes a lot more. A lot more, yeah. But, you know, now I, I make it when I have extra rice left over. It's also this sort of tradition that we started, and I'm sure, I mean, think, I know tons of other people do it, but after Thanksgiving... At home, when I used to live with my parents and I was young, um, my grandmother would always take the turkey carcass and she would make turkey stock. And then, you know, on Saturday or Sunday after Thanksgiving, we would all get together again and have turkey joke. Thank you for sharing that. I felt the comfort and (laughs) now I'm hungry. (laughs) What is a specific roadblock that you have encountered in food journalism? I think the biggest roadblock, I think it's for more than just food journalism, but in kind of all of journalism is the lack of diversity in the writers and editors in obviously an editor in chiefs. I mean, I think you can only ever write about what you know. And if what you know is across the board homogenous, then every other viewpoint that is unknown never gets told. And so it's frustrating because also for young people, and I think you know, I was privileged when I grew up in that 
I didn't believe in. I think some people really need to see someone who looks like them to believe that they can do it. And I think I was that kind of asshole cocky kid who was like, I'm going to do it anyway. But, you know, there is a lot of value in in having role models. And I think the lack of representation has sort of fueled this very homogenous kind of, you know, we just see like, yes, these things are all happening and they are true, but you don't really see stories told about the other. And I think a lot of that's sort of the fight that's going on in a lot of newsrooms. And I think in a lot of freelance world too, because mm. I almost went on a Twitter rant about it, but I was like, no, it's too early. Um, <laughs> but you know, like awards, awards are a scam. We all know that, you know, you have to pay to play and a lot of places are, you know, our newspaper. So your newspaper will cover the cost of your entry fee, but like they're expensive. You know, it's sometimes it's like 60, 80, a hundred, $150 per entry for an award. And so if you have someone covering you, the likelihood that you as a food writer from a newspaper are white is high. When I was at the Oregonian, I was the only staffed food writer of color in the entire state. In the entire state? Yes. I mean, obviously there's freelancers and things yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, but, but I staffed. Was, yes, the only staffed food writer of color in the entire state. So, <sighs> you know that, so okay, if I, if me in the entire state of Oregon is not having someone pay you know, $150 for me to enter my story into this competition, which I likely won't win because, you know, how many, I don't have 500, you know, I don't have however much money. It immediately sort of puts all these writers who are usually white writers, and that's not to detract from their work, but the ability for me to potentially win an award as a writer of color is so much less than it is for someone who comes from a privileged enough background because just by the pure fact that there is no one else that in a newsroom potentially that is, and obviously newsrooms are changing, but you know, that fact alone, yes, we know these kind of are, it's a racket. Yes, we know they're not really real, but the fact still remains that these opportunities really only exist for people with enough capital and money to afford to be a part of it. And usually that doesn't include people of color. Yes. I don't know if that was your original question. Yes and no, but it's so much better. <laughs> like, yes, I needed to hear that. The world needs to hear that, that there's a big shift happening and with diversity and in many workplaces, but newsrooms are the places where information is distributed yeah. to the masses, which eventually informs people's criteria and biases and yeah I just need to let that sink in yeah wow you know and it's like how how I look at the world is very different you know I was sort of always the and we're getting away from this term the cheap eats writer which I think for a lot of places or I think a lot of people is sort of the less glamorous position because it's like, well, you're not writing the high-end restaurant reviews. And yet I think cheap, sorry, but cheap eats is so much more than that. Oh, yeah. Beca I think actually because they're cheap eats, like it's it, they come from a place of resourcefulness. They most likely come from a culture that has been colonized or faced tons of socio-political, economical struggles, they most likely would will come from 
families that have had a lot of hardships. I mean, not saying it's not exclusive, right? There's also very Michelin star fancy places that, you know, those people go through hardships and, and things. But I feel that if anything, like holes in the walls, cheap eats are, they're golden. You know, they're yeah, they're so special. I mean, I think a lot of the our food world is sort of pushed forward by the idea of cheap eats, and most of it is because cheap eats is largely run by marginalized communities. Yes, which is an issue into itself, and that we kind of place the other's food into this realm where it can only be cheap and the amount of emails I would get about this place being so expensive when it's, you know, I'm like, do you know how much time and effort goes into this? Mm-hmm. But being the cheap eats writer was actually great because I, Oh my God, all the great food that you got yeah, to eat. But I, you know, I used it as here's a way, an easy way for me to write about marginalized communities and immigrant populations in Portland and lift those places up because you know, no one else is doing it. I want to ask you many things about uh, specific things about being a food writer and what that entails. And regarding Chinese food, I feel very privileged because I come from a state that Baja California, um, the capital, the city of Mexicali, has a big Chinese population. That's awesome. Big, big, big. So Mexican Chinese food, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. And it's so delicious and we grew up with it and we knew the flavors and the textures and when we moved here we thought I guess I had never eaten Chinese food in the U.S. outside of um, Panda Express Mm. in in Southern California but you know like good local hole-in-the-wall Chinese joints and here we came here and we were like just time after time so underwhelmed Mm -hmm. and we're like this is so sad this is not one you know and and i bet even um the mexican chinese food is not it's still mexican chinese food right it's maybe something that you wouldn't uh, have in taste exactly like something that that was made in china um but i just wanted to echo in that. The other one is that you bring up that's, I think, kind of more, not more oppression, but something that's sort of come up a lot lately is the idea of authenticity and what that means. And that people are kind of always seeking this, quote, quote, authentic experience. But like, I, like I don't have an authentic Chinese experience. Like my authentic Chinese experience is a second gen Chinese American who grew up sort of tangentially living in Chinatown. But, you know, talking about Mexican Chinese food, like that's authentic because, you know, for you growing up, like that is what you grew up with. That is authentic to those people. And I think people always think authentic must mean the truest form of this thing from the place where it was born. But that, you know, like growing up in like New York City, like growing up in Flushing, like you're going to have your own authentic experience of what it was like to be a Chinese American in Flushing, New York, versus if you grew up in San Francisco's Chinatown, Mm -hmm. your idea of what authenticity is, is very different. And neither of those are invalid. But I think you kind of have this, I think a lot, maybe this is being distant, I don't know, maybe this is rude, but like a lot from white media, when you have like, oh, what is this? Like authentic, this is authentic. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. Authentic is a meaningless word because every person's individual experience is an authentic experience, but doesn't fit the rhetoric that we've put against Chinese food, Mexican food, Polish food, Irish, you know, kind of whatever you want. 
there is no such thing as authenticity. I love that you're saying this because, uh, yeah, I think the word authenticity, it's um, tied with purism. You know, like, oh, it if it wasn't from this tiny village in yep. rural China, it's not really authentic. And thank you for saying that. That is, that is so interesting. What is that dynamic when you're a food writer writing for an, a newspaper? How does that look like? They, you make your own schedule. They pay for the meals. How, I want to know like the nitty-gritty behind an article that we read sure um well for me and i you know i can't speak to other people's you know situations when i was at the oregonian i basically made my own schedule i decided all the stories i was gonna do i mean obviously there were pieces i was like we need you to do uh whatever and i would you know do that but for the most part i was like hey i found this cool thing i want to write about or i've been hearing this like this thing that happened one of the last stories that i wrote at the Oregonian that I was really proud of was kind of a two-part. It was a, a service aspect and then enterprise. And enterprise is kind of a, a bigger, longer story. So the service part was I went to every single Asian grocery store in the Portland metro area. So that's all, more than 50 of them. So I drove to every single grocery store. I went inside. I took pictures. I like briefly, you know, I know what I'm looking at, you know, and I, so I organized it by here, this store has this this is the best for these cuisines. And then the enterprise aspect of it was that a lot of kind of bigger brand Asian grocery stores are targeting Portland. And that my story was, I looked at Asian American population changes in the three, four counties based on where these grocery stores were opening. So kind of population change and migration patterns viewed through where grocery stores are targeting their consumers. But yeah, I was pretty much just making my own my own schedule and my own stories and pitching my own stuff. And like when I'd go out to eat, I would just, you know, go in. And the nice thing about today is everyone takes pictures of their food. I mean, I've got other so times. it's relatable. Well, I mean, it's, it wasn't conspicuous. Mm, okay, yeah. Because I never was like, I never announced myself. Really? Oh, okay. And, you know, I would just like go in for a meal and I'd have an experience and, you know, I'd take notes at the table take pictures, and then... Did the newspaper pay for those meals? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I had an expense... Or an expense... I just expensed all my expenses. It wasn't so much like I have $100 to work with this the month. The dream! And, you can turn in all of your food-related expenses. Well, I did have to justify it. It wasn't uh, kind of Nonetheless. free reign. Yeah, and it's funny, too, because... The travel writer and I actually talk about this all the time. They're like, wow, that's an amazing job. Like, you just get to do all these things. I'm like, yes, that is a fact. But have you ever eaten three dinners in a night? Have you ever, you know, it's mm. like, have you ever eaten like tons of meals by yourself? And there, I mean, I hate this makes me sound like an asshole, but the it also is really hard on you. I think kind of especially physically. But like mentally in a way too, like it got easier the longer I was here because I finally made friends. I mean, I had moved here. I didn't know anybody. So I was working on projects like big eating projects where I was going out breakfast, lunch, dinner, sometimes two dinners. So I'd sometimes go out for three, four, five meals a day alone. And, you know, so this like constant like. So there's a downside to it. Yeah, there's always a downside to it. I mean, you read a lot of especially now we're kind of getting into this world where addiction is kind of coming out as more of a, a narrative in the food world. It's always been there. 
alcohol addiction, oh, I see, drug, I see. I mean, kind of the, so the things that you glean from working in a kitchen or like this, you know, it's like it is unhealthy to eat as much as a professional food writer needs to eat. And there are ways around that. But like at the end of the book, you have to put it in your mouth. Yeah. You have to eat it. <laughs> and, you know, so that's it was a hard part, too, is like, OK, how do I balance my life? Around all these meals right. I need to have. You know, if I'm, if I have a, a hundred, if I'm doing like a big, if I'm doing the cheap eats guide, I'm putting a hundred places in there. And so that means. How long do you have to write that piece? Uh, I think the the last one that I did, I had um, a couple months. Okay. So you have a little bit of lead time, but it's a lot of planning. And then on top of that, I mean, the food section, entertainment sections in general are where newspapers make their money, allegedly. Yeah. I think no one's really figured out the model. But so on top of also needing to do this thing, you know, I work on the weekends, I work at nights, I work in the morning before I go to work. I also need to put out regular work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's a lot of balancing act of how do I how do I find time? And I think this is for any journalist in any newspaper. How do I find time to work on the things I really care about while also doing the things that I need to do in this position or to make my boss happy or to yeah whatever? And I think everyone has it. That's not unique to being a food writer at all. But, you know, it was like, I just want to write about, yeah, I'm like, I just want to write about cool places, but I first have to do all the other shit. So yeah, it's, um, you win some, you lose some. Yeah. What does diversity in food mean to you? I mean, I think it makes it more interesting. I think diversity in food at the, at the base level, it is more interesting. You know, I get to eat a different, I could eat a different thing every night, every day, every meal, For as many places as there are in Portland that could sustain that at a higher level, I think it it has an education factor. I think people, when you, you know, kind of learn more about other people, I don't think people are inherently discriminatory, but we all have kind of stereotypes that we uphold, even in our own communities. Yeah. But I think you know, when you have kind of a positive association through food or you start to learn things through food, there's this education aspect for maybe you, the diner, where you're like, oh, wow, this is amazing. I want to learn more about this. And you go through the history or you go through and that kind of enlightenment about a culture or a dish or an ingredient or a chef that's doing it or things like that. It kind of just, I think, makes you more curious, but also I think kind of removes otherism from a lot of situations, you know, because there are a lot of similarities in food in terms of, you know, like a lot of Asian cultures share a lot of the same ingredients. We prepare Mm. them differently. Colonialism and wars and, you know, those things have shaped how we interact with food. Like if you look at like putajie in Korean food, which is like the military stew that was born out of the Korean War. And, you know, with spam. Yeah, these are events that lead to many things, among them new dishes. Yeah. If you could change three things in the um, food industry, like, you know, restaurants, writing, farms, the way people consume food, what would they be? That's a big question. I think my first answer would be the way that we view people of color. And I think that is sort of a multifaceted answer in that going back to cheap eats, there's sort of this idea that immigrant food, in order for it to be good because of quote, quote, authenticity, it must be cheap. Yeah. And I think it pigeonholes a lot of cuisines that 
French food or Italian food or now in the past couple decades, Japanese food hasn't had to deal with, but that there's this quality of goodness and cheapness and authenticity, sort of this like triumvirate of, I think, falseness. And so I think, you know, people have this and I people would hate that it would be associated this way, but it's a very racist view of food that because you're not white, it must be cheap. And so, you know, I think how we treat restaurants that way, how we treat workers that way, how we treat labels, you know, it's like different ingredients that are made by Asian Americans and ingredients that are maybe the white label. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the Asian ingredient is going to have to be cheaper than the white label, even though it's probably actually more authentic or it has kind of, I think there's just this very... I was going to say subtle, actually, but it's not very subtle. It's just the way that we look at things produced, handled, created, bought, sold, kind of everything the way that people of color are have this association in the food world. I mean, we, for the most part, most people of color have been colonized at some point. And I think that mentality kind of holds over to today in how kind of our food system also operates. I think also, I mean being a woman in the food world. I think I had read this interesting article a while back when the pastry version of chef's table came out and the Christina Tozzi episode. Mm -hmm. And you see it kind of every other episode with a guy is about, he's like on the red carpet, he's winning awards. He's doing all these things. He's like, he's portrayed as like badass in the kitchen. And then Christina Tozzi cupcakes right at home with her. You know, it's like, it's just the way it was shot. And maybe that was just, that was all they had. But maybe that was what she wanted to do. But, you know, when you see the big picture, you're like, oh, there's a pattern. We're always, women are other too, you know, and we're still fighting for equality at the table. You know, it's like, I think now you're starting to see a lot of really awesome women chefs kind of making a name for themselves. But for a really long time, that was, I think for a while it was like, look at what this woman's doing versus, you know, it's like, we still have awards for best female chef. It's like, well, why can't it just be best chef? Yes. I was reading an article about female scientists and someone was like, we're not women scientists, we're scientists. Yeah. Period. And it kind of, you know, it's like, well, we feel like we have to make a special award in order to award women in excellence when they're already excellent and you just fail to include them in the original conversation because you, you know, like there's a lot of things with, I think, how women are portrayed in the media, which I think is changing, but it's so frustrating to see sometimes like the female chef or female this or I'm like, okay, but we're all the same. We're doing the same thing. Yeah. What is a toy that you always wanted to have, but never had as a kid? I was a weird kid. <laughs> I like, lo- I had an easy bake oven and I was fucking set. I read a meme the other day that said like, Hey guys, <laughs> the brownie that I put in my easy bake oven in 1993, it's finally done. So if you want to come <laughs> over. I think I wanted like a trampoline. Mm. You oh, know, man, that would have been amazing. You know, like I think my friend had one of those like mini trampolines that actually the round ones, those tiny ones. But also they use those for those like fitness classes yes. now, which looks wild to me because I'm like, mm, fucking break my neck on yep. this thing. But I think maybe I wanted like a trampoline, but she had one. And I was like, well, this is fine, I guess. <laughs> What is a song you used to hype you up? A song I used to hype me up. Oh, what's my pump up jam? Um, lately, it has been 
the new Carly, well, the newer Carly Rae Jepsen party for one. But what's like a classic, um, classic, classic pump up jam for me is Earth, Wind and Fire in the Stone. <laughs> Do you dance to it, sing to it? Yeah, the Just... whole the whole thing. Love it. I was in show choir in high school, so got a lot of <laughs> a lot of hyped choral versions of songs that I still remember parts of the dance to. What is a moment when you feel magical? A moment when I feel magical. I think and I'm sure a lot of people would say this in the Northwest, like finishing a hike or like getting to the top. I'm a huge like I, I'm a big outdoors person, but also I'm a big outdoors person for the Instagram. <laughs> I'm that bitch. Do it for the gram. Do it for the gram. But just like getting to the top, especially when it's like a beautiful, clear day and just like seeing that vista that you worked really hard for. I have sports asthma. So like hiking can be really uncomfortable for me. And, you know, just like getting to the top and just being like, man, this is a fucking dope. I live here now. Someone please call a rescue helicopter because I'm never coming down. <laughs> what is the best advice someone gave you? I don't have any like I think I, I don't necessarily have like here's a piece of advice that's that sticks out to me. But having people believe in me. Like, and I, like, I couldn't, you know, I had like a professor in college who like, for some reason still is, you know, very like occasionally checks in on me. Go Sam. Yeah. And is like a cheerleader and just like having people along the way who, you know, supported me or who believed in me or who, you know, just like let me vent my frustrations or my like self-sabotaging thoughts or things like that and being like, okay, yeah, but... Like, you can do this thing. Like, I know you can. Like, I know you're great. Share an unpopular opinion. Mm. What of my opinions are not unpopular? Um, well, at least I feel like this is an unpopular opinion for maybe me being a Chinese person. I hate bean sprouts. What? I've never heard that before. Yeah, I don't like bean sprouts. When was the last good cry you had? I cry constantly. I'm like... Uh, he, crying is like my catharsis and I mean it's like I cry over stupid shit like I listen to this podcast that is like about fantasy stories and you know like I was just listening to the farewell episode again of like the last season and it's just being about how fantasy is this world that exists like for you to kind of find yourself in again and like when you find your community in that it's like very I don't know it you know it's like when you find your community that's such like a a good feeling and being like never being made fun of by other people in that space or things like that. I'm like, man, being seen is awesome. <laughs> I like started crying about it. Being or seen like, is awesome. Or like West Wing episodes, literally anything. Cute dogs, sign me up. Here come the tears. <laughs> and the last one, do you have any crazy travel stories? Actually, I do. Uh, when I went to China, um, I was with my mom. We went now, it might be two or three years ago. I can't remember. But we were in um, Guangzhou, which is in the south of China. And um, we, I can't even remember how this whole thing started. I had actually gotten us lost in this coffee shop. My mom was pissed at me. But there's no Google in China. So like Bing sucks. But we were like trying to get back to the hotel. I was like, we'll take the train. Got off at the wrong stop. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Like <laughs> we're in the wrong place. And it was like just trying to find somebody. Like I speak a little bit of Mandarin, amazingly enough, to get us through three cities in China. Um, 
And I was like, I'm like, I, I don't know. We need to like need to ask somebody like, where's this hotel? And then nobody had heard of the hotel. And I was like, Oh Jesus, I'm going to get murdered tonight. <laughs> and we sat down on this couch across from these two dudes. One of the dudes looked like my favorite Chinese actor, Donnie Yen. And I was like, man, this guy looks like Donnie Yen. And my mom and I were talking and the other guy he's with, I think, I think his name was Daniel. His English name was Daniel turned to us and said in like pretty good English, like, where are you guys from? What are you guys doing? And we started this conversation with these two dudes. The guy who looked like Donnie Yen spoke kind of like a little bit of Cantonese. So my mom and him, or he spoke a little bit of Toysan. So my mom and him could talk. And then like Daniel spoke English pretty well. So then we're like having this conversation and we're like, have you heard of this hotel? And they're like, oh yeah, it's right on here. Could we walk you there and then take you to dinner afterwards? What? And we're like, yeah, 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 okay, this is, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, all right. They walked us back to the hotel, waited in the lobby for us to get changed as Donnie Yen's driver came. Oh, so he, it was him. No, it wasn't him. Okay. We looked just like him, though. Okay. But I'm going to call him Donnie Yen because I'm sorry, I don't remember his name. But he's like, I'll have my driver come pick us up and let me take you out to dinner. So we're like, we're going to be kidnapped and murdered, right? And I'm like, I, I don't know. I don't know. Let, fuck it, right? Like, where, where could Was this go? Was your mom in it? Like, yeah, let's just do it. Yeah, she's like, well, when you have that moment, you're like, is this a bad idea? Yeah. But I was like, whatever. Like, you know, let's, let's see how this goes. So we go out to dinner. It's like Donnie and Daniel. Daniel. And then like two or three of Donnie Yen's friends come over and they like take us out to dinner and we like actually have a really great time. I like drink these dudes under the table with one beer. Beer is very low ABV in China. (laughs) And then at the end of dinner, they like drive us home. They're like, this is awesome. And I had mentioned that I was like, man, I was looking for this tea market the other day and got lost, which was the beginning of me getting my mom mad on this trip. Because I couldn't find the tea market. And he's like, oh, my friend runs a tea store. Could we take you there tomorrow? And we're like, well, we got to take a train to Hong Kong. And he's like, that's fine. We'll pick you up at the hotel. I'll take you to my friend's tea shop. We'll take you to lunch. And then we'll drive you to the train station. Oh, my God. And we're like, okay, yeah. And so I'm like, not dead yet. So they pick us up with all of our bags in this like tiny little Audi, drive us to this guy's place. He like knows the owner and he like does a whole tea ceremony for us. Like him and his wife, they like bring out, they bust out all these nice teas. They give us the friend discount. They like package all the tea up for us while we're having lunch, like three doors down at this seafood restaurant where they're like, and you know, we're like had this amazing lunch. We go back. I like buy this beautiful Gaiwan set from this guy that Donnie Yen helps me haggle the price down on because I'm really bad at haggling. I'm just like, just what's the sticker price? I'll pay it. And what is that that you bought? Uh, Gaiwan is like a, it's like a cup. It's like a tea set basically with like a cup that you strain leaves out. I mean, it's like a very, just a more formal um, tea setup. Okay. And then they drive us to the, the train station and they like walk us us and our bags into the train station and you know we say goodbye and then like the next day in hong kong daniel like leaves us this like sweet voicemail where he like sings us a song about how much he like loved hanging out with us and like we talked on wechat for a little while (laughs) and i was just like what the fuck is this (laughs) like like my options were either dead or fucking awesome and we got fucking awesome so Uh, that's really cool to hear I mean, yeah. I was kind of waiting for 
the shoe yeah, to drop. The, the shoe to drop. No, but it was I'm just this like incredible, like wow, that it was, was playing am- out good fun. It was amazing. And good people. Yeah, good people. And it was just very much like this guy never has anyone to take out, and now he's like Aww. met nice people. I'm nice, I'm self describing here, who you know he can like take out to eat and like took it to some badass places and like got us in and you know it was just like i got what i got a tea set which i wanted i got tea which i wanted and it was just like wow good food which is always a plus yeah and i was just like wow i did not expect this at all like i thought i was gonna have to go home and deal with my mom yelling at me for being bad at directions in a place where i can't really get directions and look what happened that's amazing sam i want to have this conversation over and over again. And then I want to talk individually of every subject that it's an issue by itself. This has been so enlightening and fascinating. And also, even though we come from different cultures, I feel very seen by your experience. Thank you for your candor and for doing it. Oh, thank you. And I think that's what's great about food is like, it's all pretty different, but at the base of it, it's mostly the same. This is what I'm taking away from my conversation with Sam. Number one, sometimes we invest a lot of time preparing for something, a degree, an event, only to find out that it is not a good fit. But it's not a lost cause. You can still take valuable lessons from it. Follow the clues. Number two, always, always, always be vocal about your dreams. Someone could hear and present you with a random opportunity. The universe is always listening. Number three, create space to cultivate experiences that nourish your soul, that align with what you like to do. Number four, if you ever participate in Survivor, remember to add a bunch of water to your rice and then the rice will expand and make a lot more. Number five, if you are in a position of power at work, please be intentional about the people you bring on board. We need to see and hear and read more diverse stories. Number six, every person's individual experience is an authentic experience. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and you feel a little bit more inspired, more magical, more human. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the show. Say hello to me on Instagram and tell me what resonated with you or what did you like the most about today's episode. If anything you listened to made you think of someone, please go share it with them. The world is a better place when we make each other feel seen. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. I see you, I hear you, I love you. Talk to you next week. Bye. This show is produced by Annie Fassler of Puddle Creative with music by Megan Diana and cover art by Vania Vananina, that's me, and Maya Busby.